Okay, welcome back then. Tim Davies, Fast Chip Performance. Uh, I've got another podcast for you. I've just come down from a simulated attack profile trip with a student. And he, I'm not feeling great because he was throwing that jet around. Um, two of us at low level, pretty much going around uh, South Wales, fighting the weather, as it were. And um, I personally, having flown for 20 years, did not feel that there was reason to throw the airplane around in the way he did he felt different to me and that will be reflected on his grade sheet of course which is fine I'm actually quite fluffy and this is how we teach people but god I'm feeling shabby and the truth is I'm part-time the problem with being part-time is of course you don't fly too much and when you do fly um, you realize how brutal a military fast jet cockpit actually is it's um yeah I think I did this for 20 years. I must be mad. However, I've flown twice today and it just hits you as well about how tired it makes you. And looking back on that, and we will get into this podcast in a minute, uh, looking back on, on all the years I've done in the cockpit, and I haven't had a break from flying. Uh, I leave the Air Force next June, but I haven't had a break from flying and it makes me realize now, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about this because obviously we do overanalyze things not only because we're pilots but largely probably because we're men and uh, men are probably on that autistic spectrum somewhere that's why it's called a spectrum so we're very analytical and it makes me realize how tired I must have been over the last 20 years we will see look I've got a podcast out today I really like to read it to you um, it's been doing uh, it's got uh, quite a few comments to be honest with you and it's got quite a few likes and it's a bit weird because it's a sort of thing that I don't like people to like, and that, that sounds kind of strange, but um, I had a request from a LinkedIn contact, and if you haven't LinkedIn to me, by all means, please do that. I like to build a network um, of people that can help each other out. I got a request to write something about an operational tour I did, and I thought I'd write about one particular event that was um, sufficiently harrowing that happened back in, I had looked through my logbook actually, and someone did ask me, it happened back in, I believe, 2004 um, over the southern town um, of Amara in Iraq. Um, so I'm going to read it out to you because there's a whole lot of emotion there in this. And uh, and the emotion really comes, as I kind of explain here, really from more than anything like what didn't happen than actually what did. Let me read it to you and maybe we'll chat through some stuff at the end. Okay. It's a dull day at the office. At least you're not a fighter pilot. It's about eight minutes. Okay, emotionally and especially for a fighter pilot, it was going to be a difficult day. It started with the fact that I hadn't stopped the blast that killed them. I was over 100 miles away staring at my watch, wishing time away so I could go home. Maybe back at the airbase it would be pizza night or I might start the next series of 24. You see, my world wasn't a sweltering hot cloud of dust and debris. I didn't have the wreckage from one of my Land Rovers spread over half a kilometre of a town far from home that nobody cared about. I couldn't hear anyone screaming for help in my cockpit and as I looked out towards the snow-capped mountains, the clouds were fluffy and the sun was bright. I was so bored. And if anything, a touch warm. I turned the aircon 
down a little. I don't think I'd spoken to my weapons officer for over 40 minutes. Everything we needed to say had been said in the previous three hours. I could see my wingman a couple of miles away. Steve was new to the squadron, but solid. He was beginning to understand that our tour of Iraq was going to be anything but exciting. Exciting for a military fast jet pilot is anything that involves death, either the delivery or the acceptance. It's part of the job and comes with the territory. All flying is dangerous and some of our friends died doing it, mostly in peacetime and training. In conflict, though, we concentrate on just two things, preserving life or taking it. For the latter, military jet pilots are expert at killing large amounts of people as quickly as possible. We all want to test ourselves for real. For me, it was to drop bombs on bridges and advancing armour. For my friends who flew fighter jets, it was to fire missiles at hostile aircraft and dogfight to the death. There is a romanticism to military flying and even though I've done it for the last 20 years, I still get a buzz thinking about it. It was my job. I was a low-level strike attack pilot and my aircraft was a Tornado GR4. An all-weather, day and night, terrain following, map of the earth flying, swing wing, messenger of death and here I was, finally taking her to war. Except my war was anything but romantic. I was sat at 20,000 feet over a small town in southern Iraq babysitting an insurgency we had yet to see. Occasionally, we'd watch over a convoy or take some pictures of suspect vehicles, but mostly, we were just looking for anything strange. And to me, everything looked strange. Each day, the squadron would send up a couple of jets north for the hour and a half journey to the southern border of Iraq. There, we'd have to refuel from a tanker before starting a three-hour watch X where precisely nothing would happen. Then we go and find the tanker again, which would often be up around Baghdad. It would take us 40 minutes just to get there. If we were lucky, one of us would struggle to get into the basket on the end of the refueling hose, and we'd have the excitement of having to try a little harder. But normally, it all worked out just fine. Then we'd do another hour or so before finding the tanker again and trudging off home for 90 minutes of autopilot pleasure before landing. Sometimes my weapons officer would stay awake and chat but often it was good for one of us to get some sleep because these sorties could be up to eight hours at times. I remember the line I'd once read in Chicken Hawk by the pilot Robert Mason on flying helicopters in the Vietnam War. Boredom was breeding widespread depression. With apparently no one to fight, the CAV was just 20,000 men sitting in the middle of Vietnam in their mildewing tents, wondering why they were here. Yeah, I could identify with that. My war was indeed disappointing. Before we deployed, the squadron were given some legal briefings, which largely amounted to, we're not sure that at the moment we have a legal justification to be in Iraq. So if you do drop a bomb, you'll probably end up in court. Always good to know, we thought. As a result, our aircraft flew with a flowchart that told us who to get authority from if we were tasked 
with having to fire on a target. It was complicated and one of those things that you really didn't want to do, like changing a car tyre on a dark and stormy night. Except using a 13-year-old UN resolution to justify being in a conflict that the Secretary-General had said was illegal sucked a little bit more. How you doing over there? I called to my wingman. Just trying to stay awake, came the reply. Sometimes the boredom would get interrupted by something amusing, like the time my weapons officer decided that bringing a packet of skittles with him was a good idea. At 20,000 feet, the cabin pressure is about half of what you'd expect on the ground, and this causes things that were packed at sea level to expand in the cockpit. Bulging seams makes them hard to open, as aptly demonstrated one morning over the town of Najaf. Ah, Slight snag back here, came the call over the intercom. What have you done? I replied. Okay, so you know how I said that I was going to bring some Skittles along to spice up those bland American lunches we've got? It was an accepted fact that we thought the pack lunches given to fast jet crews were a cruel trick being played by the catering staff back at base. Apples, sandwiches, crisps, and a fizzy drinks carton, all proving highly difficult to smuggle under a carefully fitted oxygen mask whose sole job was to keep us conscious. Basically, you could live and go hungry, or eat and die. I didn't know that, I commented. And you know I didn't know, which makes me think that you were trying to get my buy-in for something bad you've done. Um came the guilt-dripping reply. What have you done that is bad, I said. Well, came the explanation from the back seat. Let's just say that a packet of swollen Skittles can indeed be opened in the cockpit, but then they all tend to... Uh, how do I say this without getting you upset? Wander off? And thus, the first big bang of my combat tour was an in-cockpit Skittle explosion. I still wonder if anyone on the ground ever looked up and questioned why a heavily laden combat aircraft was flying upside down for so long as we frantically tried to pick small coloured sweets off the top of the canopy. And then it happened. We were over the southern town of Basra when the radio call came. Monster 1-3, Chariot. Troops in contact, stand by. It was the call we'd all been waiting for, but that none of us ever wanted. It meant our guys on the ground were in trouble, and if they were requesting us, then it was big trouble. Monster 1-3, activity reported 100 miles north of your position. Chariot directs you route to Mara and wait for further. I guess we're going, I said to my backseater. Let's get up there, came the response. As I rocked both throttles into the reheat range, I felt the dull kick of afterburn ignition, pushing them both fully forward, signalled that we were on our way. It was only eight minutes flying time, but we were heavy and carrying large fuel tanks, a fully loaded cannon, electronic suppression kit, targeting pods, and a Paveway 2 laser-guided bomb. I left our wingman to complete the task down south whilst we checked out the action. The radios were frantic, and we eventually managed to dial into the British Army unit on the ground. It was devastating. They'd driven into a massive IED, multiple casualties, many severe. 
there was still hostile activity in the area and they were having to treat the wounded in situ. It was obvious that without our help, people were going to die. Monster One Three Chariot. They are requesting your immediate assistance. They have suspected insurgent activity inbound. We'll be there in three minutes, I called as I trimmed the wings back even further. But we had other problems. Whilst I had been analysing the situation on the ground, my weapons system officer was preparing the targeting pod and working some fuel calculations. We need to go to the Baghdad tow line now, he stated coldly. We don't have the fuel for any time on task at the moment. We burnt a lot more in the transit than we'd anticipated, but only 15 miles until we hit the soldier's location, we were going to have to disengage and route another 200 miles to hit the tanker up by Baghdad. I couldn't believe it. Let's get the others up here, I said, before calling Steve to come and find us. Chariot, Monster 1-3, we need immediate routing for the tow line. We are fuel critical, I called. But sometimes, and often when things are going badly, something extraordinary happens. In this case, a mystical voice that seemed to have no place in the madness of the current situation came over the radio. Look up, boys! And as we did, the silhouette of a RAF VC-10 tanker slowly drifted over us. It couldn't have been better timed. They'd heard the intensity of the situation and redirected the US Navy F-18s they were about to service to another tow line. They knew we'd be hurting for fuel, so had broken with protocol and had come down to find us. It was an awesome sight. 30 seconds later, we screamed over the incident scene in full reheat and with the wings fully back. We were fast, low and loud, and any insurgents left in the town could be under no illusion that their nemesis had arrived. The scene was chaotic, with soldiers rushing about and shredded vehicle parts spread across an area the size of a football field. A large crowd had gathered to the north of the main road, and troops were holding it back. Don't worry guys, we got you back, I thought, as I saw Steve arrive on scene like something out of a Star Wars movie. I explained the situation and climbed up to get some fuel. Then one of the injured soldiers died. The unit on the ground called us up directly to tell us the news. We were stunned. Nothing prepares you for that. In all the training we'd done, I'd never heard a call like it. It's a strange feeling being over your own troops and being powerless to help. As I came off the tanker, I sent Steve to get some fuel too. The radios were respectfully silent. Soon there began a discussion on whether any insurgent targeting could be done, except nobody knew who to target. We could see angry crowds gathered near the scene, but nothing outwardly hostile. Then another soldier died. It was like a double punch to the chest that we couldn't do anything about. For the next hour, we just flew around in circles, detached from the horror below. I felt an intensity of wanting to be down there with the guys. It's something... To this day, that I still find hard to describe. Soon, we heard that our helicopters were inbound to deliver support and we got called off station to return home. Our day was over. For many of us, our wars didn't involve getting shot at or shooting down enemy jets, though I've trained plenty of pilots who have done just that. They say that PTSD comes to pilots 30 years after the event. For soldiers, it's immediate. 
I worry for them both. But there is another form of stress that comes from being there but not being there. It comes from being unable to do anything to help. Being unable to retaliate against an attack. It comes from the unfairness of it all and the loss of trust in your ability to make a difference. Those soldiers couldn't shoot back at anybody after the ID took the lives of their friends. Their attackers were ghosts in a crowd. All the weapons training those young guys had done was useless in that moment. There was to be no retribution, no justice for their lost mates, just anger, guilt and a lifetime of self-doubt. The insurgents knew this. It's why they used IEDs. The actual blast being the first part of the devastation. The second part being the years of self-loathing and questioning yourself about whether there was anything else you could have done. They couldn't have stopped the attack and neither could I. I was in command of two tornado bombers armed to the teeth and ready to fight. This is what I trained to do. I just needed a target. We all just needed a target. When I left Iraq at the end of my tour, I was on a troop plane that also happened to be carrying some of the soldiers that were on the ground that day in Amara. It was a pure coincidence that I got talking to a young guy who told me about his time in country before asking about the flying. After a bit of banter and a few laughs, he told me about the incident. It was clearly still affecting him. He had been with one of his friends who'd been hit in the blast. When I heard the noise of your jet come over, I knew we were going to be okay. And I said to him, we're okay, the jets are here, we're going to be okay. He just relaxed, closed his eyes and then he died. It was the saddest thing I ever heard. I decided to save the Skittle story for another day. That's it. That's the end. I really appreciate you listening. It's um, one of these kind of difficult posts that you write. Hopefully people can get something from it. People can understand that a lot of the time we do a lot of training and we never get to put those skills into uh, into action. I mean, I've trained a lot of guys who now are over the Middle East. And I guess they're going to have to deal with those that PTSD, whatever they have in a 30 years time. And normally it's as their kids get to the age of the people that they've been targeting, as I'm sure you can imagine. Not going to drag this one out, guys. All I will say is that um, I am leaving flying this month. I've been flying now for 20 years. I never really had a ground tour. I joined the Navy back in 98 and then transferred about five or six years later to the Air Force. And I just stayed in the cockpit the whole time. My neck's telling me it needs a bit of a break. And in all honesty, I really want to go out there, do some coaching, um, do some content delivery for some businesses and help people um, do something better with their lives. That sounds pretty good to me. I think 20 years is a pretty good number to call it quits so um, this is the last month I'm flying I flew twice today as I said at the beginning and uh, I've just seen the program for tomorrow it's pretty hectic so um, any questions you guys got please hook me up in the emails again I really appreciate your time I really appreciate your listening I really appreciate your support as always Tim Davies Fast Jet Performance 